I was thinking about the last four sermons that we had done out of the book of Galatians on the categories of sin, sexual sin, idolatry, violence, and social sins. As I did so, I couldn't help but think about how we are seeing all of these sins evidenced in the culture around us, really in unprecedented, almost unhistorical ways. You might think of it like a snowball that's rolling down a hill and it seems like nothing is going to stop it. What is going to stop what's happening in the West? I thought that before we moved on to the fruit of the Spirit, it would be worth our time to reflect a little bit on what the Bible teaches on how God restrains sin in the world. So this is a topical sermon from the context of Galatians and saying, what, what would stop this? Uh, before we look at those ways in which God restrains sin, let's be reminded of our reform doctrine regarding the nature of man, because that's what's going to drive us to ask and answer the question about God's restraints on sin. When it comes to our sin nature, there are four basic theological positions. The first one is called, you don't have to worry about the long names, but the first one's called Pelagianism. Uh, this is historic. It's a historic uh, heresy, but it was taught by Pelagius, and the basic thinking is that man is good. <clears throat> if you think, well, what about all the evil? They would say, well, man's born basically functioning and well. The problem is society has messed him up. That's the problem. It's society. Sounds like Rousseau. Another one is semi-Pelagianism, and this one describes man's sin as a kind of a sickness. Uh, yeah, he is sinful sometimes, he does do some bad things, but he can overcome with enough work and effort, uh, self-motivation and uh, improvement, he can try to do better. The third one is Arminianism. By the way, if you want to read about these further, I think it was R.C. Sproul's book, Willing to Believe, that it's a whole book on this, and so maybe that's a good resource for you. But Arminianism teaches that man is dead, he's depraved. Some people think that Arminianism doesn't teach depravity, it does. And yet what it also teaches is that if, if this is your depravity here, that God gives you enough grace to kind of level things out. And so now with this leveling process in place, uh, you can make a decision which way you want to go. And so you can choose for God, you can choose against him. That's your free will to make that choice at that point. That's got theological, logical philosophical problems uh, we'll get into nine that's not our point uh, but that's the third one the third one is uh, what we would teach here which is the depravity of man sometimes referred to as calvinism uh, and this one says that men are dead and without hope save in god's sovereign mercy that actually is one of the vows that we we use here without hope save in god's sovereign mercy there's no prevenient grace to get you up here you are here and apart from god and apart from him initiating and bringing about, regenerating you, you're without him and without, without any hope. This is why we read in Ephesians 2, this is one we saw this morning, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, and which you once, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the year, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we, were once, con we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, what we talked about before, uh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So he's describing here the depravity of man. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So you can't even understand your own depravity. Finally, Romans 3, again, a passage we looked at in the Sunday school this morning, but for those who weren't there, and just as a refresher in the context of the sermon, let's be reminded of what 
Romans 3 says. Remember, Romans is, is indicting not just the Jews and saying the Jews have turned away from God, but the Gentiles too. That both of them alike are under this wrath of God. The Jews aren't spared that just because they were given the scriptures or they were God's people. Uh, because of their rebellion, they too were under the wrath of God and needed to be reconciled to him. The description then, as Paul summarizes it in Romans 3, is this. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after, seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Now, if that's the case, it says that these people naturally run, people who are unregenerate, naturally run toward their sin, one of the questions we're going to ask is, well, what restrains that? Why aren't we just seeing complete mayhem in our culture? And again, we'll look at that in just a moment. A simple example of how the Reformed theologians would summarize this, this depravity would be this way. And it's one I think we've used in the pulpit before. And it's a simple one. I think it's, it's easy to understand, to grasp. And that's if we take a pig, you know where I'm going, and you, and you take it out of the mud and you wash it and you perfume it and put a bow on it and, and pet it and name it, uh, and you let it go, what does it do? Well, it runs back to the mud. And everybody gets this. You say, why does it do it? And the answer is always because it's a pig. People get that. That's the nature. And that's the way it's describing a person who's unregenerate, says their inclination is always back to the mud. Now, they may be dressed up and bowed for a little bit, but the inclination is always, the heart is always in the mud. Now, given that view of the sinfulness of mankind, one would think, as I said, <clears throat> that the world would be just completely topsy-turvy in a matter of even a moments. But we don't see that, and that's because, as the Bible teaches us, God restrains the full exercise of men's sin. But how does he do that? We're going to look at five ways this evening before we do assess the Lord's blessing on our time. <clears throat> Lord, we do ask that you, through your spirit and through your word, sanctify our thinking, help us to see what you want us to see tonight. Help us to appreciate what you have saved us from and what you have saved us to. And Father, may we leave informed but also changed, transformed by the renewing of our minds as we reflect on these truths from your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take a moment just to give context to the sermon. We're working through the book of Galatians. Paul is reminding the readers of the true nature of justification, how man can be declared righteous in the eyes of God through Christ by faith. Having come to faith, then the true believer is going to enter into the process of sanctification, where the Lord will, according to our shorter catechism, renew us in the whole man after the image of God and enable the believer more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So like a salmon that's swimming upstream against the rapids of the cultural decline. Christians are going to push back. We're going to turn. Repent is turning this way. And all of a sudden now, here's the culture. Here's the the sin of the world pushing against us. And God's calling us to move against that. (coughs) We do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
begin to practice and experience the fruit of the Spirit and uh, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We'll see that again, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. But let's get back to the issue at hand and ask, what about unbelievers? What does the Bible teach us about why unbelievers don't just rush headlong into their sin? We even saw it tonight a little bit with the, the, uh, the reading out of the Old Testament with Pharaoh. We see that in one place, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and another one, it says that God hardened his heart. We'll see how that works providentially. But why doesn't that just keep happening? I want to suggest five ways in which God restrains sin. In each one of these cases, we're going to note the means whereby our enemy is going to try to remove these restraints as well. Uh, God puts the restraints in. The enemy wants to remove them. Why? Because he wants to see chaos reign. He wants to see people embrace their sin and run full force into it. The first way in which God restrains us is through the conscience. The conscience, according to the Bible, is an internal guide that teaches us the differences between right and wrong. It's like an internal compass that reveals to each and every person something about the moral nature of their acts. And the Bible teaches us not just the Christian that has the conscience. In fact, everyone is born with a conscience. Paul makes that point in Romans 2 where he's making the case for the fact that everyone is a sinner and everyone has some understanding of right and wrong. Though the, the Jews had the added benefit of the scriptures, the external word, uh, every one of us is born with this. He's describing here the Gentiles, and he says in Romans 2.14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, like the Jews did, by nature do things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to the gospel. One of my favorite illustrations, and I apologize if I've used it from the pulpit before here, but I just love this illustration. This is the one from Moby Dick. If you remember when at the very beginning, and Ishmael goes into a church and the man is preaching in the pulpit, is the bow of a ship. By the way, that's the way the, when I was in West Palm Beach, they had one of those, our outdoor thing was a big prow of a ship sticking out. It's kind of interesting. But anyway, it's the same thing in this story. The, the pastor is preaching from the bow of the ship, and he's describing the story of Jonah. And, he's, of course, he's, he's bringing his own embellishments to that. But he's describing Jonah. He says, Jonah has run away from God, and he's laying in the berth now. He's waiting for the boat to depart uh, to get him away from God's call to where he was supposed to go to Nineveh and to go somewhere else. And he's laying there waiting for the boat to go. Well, while the boat is, being, is, is there and moored at the dock, they're loading it with freight. And as they load it with freight, the boat lists to one side. And Jonah's laying in bed, and the way the author describes this, uh, Melville, he says, uh, there was a lamp on the wall. It was like a burning lamp. A lantern kind of thing. And it's on a swivel. And it's on a swivel, so as the boat would move one way or the other, the lamp would stay direct, vertical, up and down. So as Jonah's laying on the boat, and the boat's being loaded, the boat's listing to one side, and the lamp holds true north, like this. And Jonah's laying there, and he says, Oh, so my conscience hangs with me. me." (laughs) So he's looking at this and saying, My conscience is doing the same thing, saying, You are off. You know, your boat is tilted. You need to do something about it. Well, that's what the conscience is supposed to do. It's to show us where we're not level, where we're off course. But though everyone has this God-given gift of the internal compass, the Bible also teaches the compass is not really often very accurate. Due to the sinfulness of mankind, 
Some consciences are weaker than others. The conscience that each of us has is not fully a fully reliable instrument. It's distorted or twisted. In fact, if it was possible uh, through sin to further, it, it is possible through sin to further warp and distort your conscience. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrine of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That's describing uh, the end days. How do people sear their conscience? Well, there's several ways. First, they can cover it up with drugs or the sins of the flesh that we've already talked about. A second way is to construct a whole new standard in its place. Usually, well, not even usually, almost always, it's a standard that's a lesser standard than what Scripture would call for in godliness. A standard that says, well, as long as you were sincere, you you had the right intentions, that's good enough. Another one, some will also rationalize their guilty conscience by, uh, they see it by rationalizing. They point to others who are even worse than they are. Well, that guy, look what he did. He's not, I'm not as bad as that. They tell themselves that God's going to grade in a curve, and they're at least in the top 50%. Finally, and perhaps there's other ways we could probably think of it, other people will sear their conscience by reinterpreting its meaning. <clears throat> they put it in kind of Freudian or evolutionary terms, and they'll say, well, that's just some outlier of an age gone by that needs to be ignored or eradicated. And this way you can style yourself a progressive uh, and enlightened while denying that inner voice that's telling you that you're wrong and you're guilty. In time, with enough effort, you can just silence the voice. <clears throat> of course, any one of these is made easier in a culture where the popular crowd is right along with you in suppressing and redefinition. A good thing about the conscience, though, is it can be trained through the Word of God and by the power of the Spirit, which is something that happens here every Sunday morning and evening as we sit under the preaching of the Word and we ask the Lord to transform our thinking into His, to mold it, to get it, to tighten, to refresh, to renew, to uh, calibrate our conscience according to God's Word. <clears throat> so the conscience is the first way that God has given the first instrument by which He restrains evil. Excuse me. <clears throat> the next three restraints that God uses to halt the slide of sin in an individual or in a culture, obviously the culture is made up of individuals, are God's three institutions of the family, the church, and the state. Let's look at each of these. Since the beginning of time, God created and affirmed the institution of the family. In fact, the family is the fundamental institution on this planet. Marriage was ordained by God for procreation and the family, ordained to provide a mini-society where the children are trained to function in a broader society when they achieve adulthood. We see the creation of the family in the first chapters of Genesis. Uh, We see it affirmed in the fifth commandment where children are commanded to obey their parents. Parents are commanded in Deuteronomy 6 uh, with these words. He says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That intentional parenting and teaching of the children. <coughs> in the New Testament, read, uh, that's not just Old Testament. New Testament, read in Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, 
For this is right, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. We're going to look at other verses about raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The family is that initial place, that initial institution where God forms the children so they can function as mature adults in the larger culture. Now, as a fundamental, then, institution in the culture, and as a God-ordained institution, it's no surprise that the covenant family is under attack in the West. As Western elites and influencers attempt to steer the broader culture away from the biblical categories and practices. An article I read recently um, said this as a quote, Virtually every society for all of time has recognized the special status of the life-giving union of a man and a woman. A monogamous marriage, especially one that produces children, is the greatest source of stability, security, and flourishing for communities and nations. To abandon that natural structure is to induce chaos, end quote. We go back 100 years and see the culture unraveling in the West. Everyone says, well, you know, what's caused that? Well, we could look and see any number of things that have led to that. We might say feminism. Uh, at least understood as a movement in which women are portrayed as being interchangeable with men in form and function. That would be one of those pegs. Another one, no-fault divorces, uh, abortion, the Obergefell decision to legalize homosexual marriage, the ill-named Respect for Marriage Act in this the last couple months, to the current trends in education, transgenderism, polyamory, and worse. It just goes on. But we see this degradation going down. <clears throat> this is what the enemy wants. He wants to stir up uh, those against the, the uh, very institution that God has ordained for us to, to maintain order. <clears throat> All of these represent, that, again, a rebellion against God's ordained institution. As I said, designed by him to protect our family structure and our children. To use a popular term, and one that just used, was used in the quote there, to build a flourishing culture. You have to have a functioning family. Um, I prefer, actually, I don't, that word is used a lot, even in reform circles. We want flourishing, human flourishing. I prefer to use the word blessed uh, because that one kind of conjures up and, and reminds us of that vertical component that's necessary uh, to have God's favor. And as the culture continues to attack the family, the very foundations upon which the culture can thrive or even survive are threatened. <clears throat> Nonetheless, we as Christians then need to continue to reaffirm the importance of the family, to follow God's command to love and nurture our families. We need to demonstrate the beauty of that institution and pray that God will use even fractured families as a means to restrain evil in society. That is one of the ways he restrains it, is through the family. <clears throat> a third way that God restrains sin is through the institution of the church. Now we can see this internally, that is inside the church, uh, how that is the case. In a biblically modeled church, we have a hierarchical, that's a dirty word in our culture, uh, a structure in which men are called to spiritually nourish the family of God. We have the elders and deacons. This is achieved through counseling, discipleship, training, preaching. The church is designed to function in a manner similar to the civil magistrate, to govern, to protect. And we'll look at the state in just a moment, but the elders of the church also have the responsibility to discipline members of the church in an effort to draw them away from their sin and to encourage godly obedience. But the church can also act in external ways. Not only is the church minister to its members, but by its presence and its proclamation of the gospel, the church as a beacon on a hill pronounces to those who will hear the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, as well as the reality of hell and the coming judgment. Additionally, there are times that the church 
will make collective pronouncements to the broader culture as a means of calling attention to the reality and the long-term consequences of turning away from God and his word. We can see multiple efforts to broadcast the culture uh, to the culture, these kinds of warnings. Some have been well-worded and biblical, others have been muddled and confusing. But even the PCA has from time to time made pronouncements on the inclusion of women in military, for example, to the biblical position on marriage and homosexuality. The pronouncements are understood to be a means whereby God's word is publicly proclaimed to the culture, and we pray that God uses them to the ends of restraining sin in the culture, reminding them of the consequences of these kinds of sins and and choices. But once again, as an institution, the enemy desires to eradicate the church at best, or to at least neutralize it. Uh, We see the rise of the false church described in Revelation. This is not something that was unprecedented or is new today. Uh, It's described in Revelation as a regular pattern to be be, uh, witnessed throughout history in the last days. We see the example of the beast from the earth or the false prophet that attempt to replace the truth with a counterfeit. In our way, we think of the liberal churches. We can think of so many ways in which there are the religious people who are speaking uh, ways which are so contrary to Scripture, and yet they wear their religious garb, they go to, they have the nice churches, they have money, uh, and they are a counterfeit. In this way, our enemy then is attempting to remove the restraint of sin by the church so that people might rebel against God and run headlong into their sin. He would like nothing better. <clears throat> the fourth means whereby God restricts evil is from the state. Turn with me over to Romans 13 a chapter that should be familiar to most of us. But if you look at Romans 13, look at verses 1 through 7, which is that kind of template that God has laid down for the purpose, uh, for the understanding of the government. And understand that this was written at a time when the government was corrupt. And yet uh, still we have this this template, this picture of what the government should be doing. And think about this again in the context of the sermon, which is God uses the government to restrain sin. Paul writes in verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. But do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Now, I'm not going to get into discussion here about whether we should be fighting for a theocracy. I know that's a debate among Christians. It's actually an interesting discussion, one I like to have, and I think it's quite interesting. But I'm going to note that everyone, believers and non-believers, are going to be judged by the same standards, the Ten Commandments. In the final judgment, everyone is going to be judged by these commandments. And such, if you function in the office of the state, you're going to be called to account for the positions that you promulgated or practiced in that office, whether or not you were faithful to the scriptures in doing so. 
And the scripture, as we just read, is clear on the basic role of the government, to minister to you for good or to be an avenger or execute wrath on those who practice evil. As such, we then see how the Lord instituted the state as a means of restraining evil, even empowering the state to use that power of the sword to take someone's life who has taken the life of another. And one of the unique things about the state compared to the other institutions is that our enemy, uh, while desiring to sideline or even eradicate the family, desires rather to empower the state. So if we think of the three institutions as three circles, we think of the uh, the enemy who desires to eradicate the family, eradicate the church, and then embolden the state, empower the state. So as we see people moving away from a biblical uh, ethic, we see the state growing. That's just very typical because the power becomes, the God becomes the state. This again here described in the book of Revelation. Shouldn't be a surprise to us. Described as the beast from the sea. Uh, one who likes, and uh, we've seen the likes in this in history over and over some are overtly pagan and maleficent, and other times they're not. Uh, but again, we see this happening in our own culture. As I've read that, uh, that section there in Romans 13, uh, you read and you think, well, that's not what our state is doing at all. Instead, it seems like it's, it's the opposite way. And yes, it is, because God has removed that restraint for his time and his purposes. We see our own times. The U.S. is funding and encouraging everything from abortion to transgender ideology around the world. And they're strong-arming financially other nations to submit to that progressive agenda. And so we need to pray for our state, and we'll get to that in the applications. Finally, fifth, the providence of God, our fifth restraint. Uh, We saw that in that that passage in Exodus. Um, Let me show you some others. And this one really does encompass the other ones as well, doesn't it? Because all of these things fall under God's providence. But because God is, we understand that God is sovereign over all events, from uh, all events in the planet, from the, its circling of the sun to the flap of a butterfly's wings, we know that God turns the hearts of the kings and men wherever he wishes, whenever he wishes. It's important that we find instruction as well as comfort and consolation in that truth. Now, to see this, I'd like you to pull out, instead of your Bible, I'd like you to pull out your Trinity Psalter hymnal, and show you something in our confession that maybe has passed your notice before, but one that I find particularly interesting and pertinent to our uh, time tonight. This is the Westminster Confession 5-6. I'm sorry, I meant to get the page number for you. 5-6 uh, is going to be... Uh, let me get over here. Uh, page 922, Chapter 5 on Providence, and then we're going to be 923, Number six. And listen to what the confession says here. Again, think about this in light of what we're thinking about tonight, God's restraint of sin. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as a right... Remember, this is the chapter on providence. uh, Whom God as a righteous judge from former sins doth blind and harden. From them he not only withholds his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasions of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means that God uses for the softening of others. Isn't that a fascinating uh, summary in our confession. We see in that confession, 
an understanding of Scripture of how God at times does not restrain sin. Providentially, he allows it to run its course. But in fact, he allows people to move further than into their corruption. We see it illustrated in the life of Pharaoh, as I mentioned. And when the Bible describes him as hardening his heart, we also see God hardening his heart. Now, we know that God does not cause anyone to sin. <clears throat> we also know <clears throat> excuse me, that he, in ways mysterious to us, is an absolute sovereign control, even over the sins of men, that his, such that his providence will allow them to uh, collectively or individually descend into the darkness of their own corruption, and we see described here. By the way, this is a note of interest. We also see in paragraph 5 a similar kind of process with believers. Uh, it's very interesting. If you look at that, number five, and I want to get too far off of that, but just while we're here, I'm going to show you this. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God is oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to discipline them, chastise, discipline them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and the deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. That's quite an interesting passage there. God's restraining a sin that applies both to believers and unbelievers. Sometimes he allows us to move into that sin uh, so that he can show us these things, to show us we're not as great as we thought we were. We're not as strong as we thought we were. Our corruption is deeper than we realize, and we need to be humbled. And so he allows that. Well, how do we apply this, these, uh, this passage for tonight? <clears throat> we began by asking the question, how does God restrain evil on the planet? We saw five ways, through the consciences of men, through the family, the church, the state, and through his providential withholding of his grace. So how do we apply what we've learned? Well, first, we should note the importance of training our minds and our consciences. We said that one of them was the conscience, and the conscience is teachable. Well, it doesn't happen by osmosis or wishful thinking. It comes from a concerted, consistent, and serious study of God's word, sitting under the preaching and teaching of the uh, local church. You must be people of the book, humble, teachable, ready to hear of God's call for a change in our thinking, a change in our attitudes, in our behavior, so that our consciences will be trained, that will be, be sensitized, they'll be redirected, recalibrated to his word. So that you find, as you grow in the Lord, as your conscience is trained, you'll pick up on things even faster. You say, I don't know why this bothers me, but something's wrong here. And then later on, I remember Dr. Bonson talking about this once. He said, sometimes as you get your conscience trained, you'll pick stuff up and you think, something's wrong about it, but I don't know what it is. And then later on, you go, ah. That's what it was. I knew, there it is, there it is. I knew there was something wrong because your conscience has been trained. You're, you're getting more sensitized to what God's word is. Second, I would just add, I mentioned it already briefly, but I'll just remind us, uh, something that we do have control over, our conscience, but also the family. And so I want to encourage you to commit to that intentional, proactive, godly, biblical training and parenting. We saw that example out of Deuteronomy where you're talking about the, the word when you're sitting down, when you're going to bed, when you're walking around, you have it on the walls, uh, you saturate your home with scripture and with biblical thinking. By the way, I'll mention as well that um, this applies to the kids. You kids that are in here, you say, yeah, parents, you need to be doing that. It, it talks to children too. 
Honor your parents. Obey your parents. So this is for you too. All of us are called to understand that hierarchy that God has given for the purpose of order and flourishing or blessing in a family and then also in the larger culture. And by the way, we do have these resources. I know we just did a thing with the men at the gates where we talked about the intentional fatherhood, and now Scotty and Taylor are going through a series on Sunday mornings. I think they missed one recording, but I think they're recording all the others. If you miss them, you can get the MP3. You can talk to Nathan or someone uh, about that afterwards. Uh, I intend to. Uh, I want to get that myself because I want to hear what they had to say um, and uh, be blessed by what they have. So we have plenty of opportunities for training. By the way, uh, Scotty, I think, is also going to be working more in this area. I know he's doing his doctorate, so that kind of pulls him from uh, pillar to post. But he is committed to trying to work more with the families, and particularly young families, uh, to help them in this process. We need to have our families intact. That's part of the way that God's going to restrain that evil. <clears throat> Third, we notice that God's providential role in the restraint of sin. I mentioned providence. And as such, it's clear that this is a call to prayer for us. We must regularly be before the Lord in prayer, asking that he restrain evil. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 this very thing. He says, Therefore I exert, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, and really especially for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. What does that mean except that God's going to restrain the king from evil and allow Christians to live in peace? He's saying, pray for the king so you can live at peace because you're not going to have the state coming upon you. And it would restrain the state. So let me ask you, how is your prayer life? If you're like me, you shake your head and say, I wish it was better. So I think it's always a good idea just to keep repeating it from the pulpit. I need to hear it. You need to hear it. We need to be praying people. We give you lots of opportunities here at the church We have the uh, Sunday morning prayer group that prays from 9 o'clock to just before worship. We have a Wednesday night prayer meeting for adults. We have, uh, and by the way, that comes with dinner too, so how do you you have a problem with that? We have a ladies' prayer meeting. We have a men's prayer meeting. There are plenty of opportunities to, to corporately come together in prayer. But, of course, that also means that we should all be praying individually for the Lord to continue to restrain sin so that his glory would be manifested. And then fourth and finally, regarding prayer and God's glory, we have to understand as well that God has the right and the wisdom to say no to our requests as he fulfills his decreed will on earth. Sometimes that means that God will allow sin and sinners to run amok. Think again of Pharaoh. Why would he allow him to do that? Well, I think you know the answer. As God allows them to do that, We begin to see why he does as it plays out. We see it in our own culture in the West today as it degrades. But it shouldn't cause us to question God's wisdom or goodness. Rather, to understand his glory is sometimes best manifested against the darkness of sin. Whether it's in the exodus in his people from Egypt or the death of his son on the cross. We need to trust God in these situations. Nations ebb and flow. Uh, all you got to do is go to take a history class, the ebb and flow. Uh, we have in this country had a nice uh, flowing into a nice place, but now it's beginning to ebb away. That's where God has called us at this particular time. So he calls us then to double down in our prayers and our faithfulness to him. Do you remember the words of Jesus, though, when he 
approached the disciples in the boat, and they all thought they were going to die. The storm was tossing them. They thought they were going to die, and Jesus walked up to them. Do you remember his words? It's the same words that we can close with tonight. He said, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. May we hear and live by these words this evening. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these reminders that you can and will restrain sin according to your will, when and how you wish. Father, for those times where we see that you allow sin to run amok, we pray that we would steal our minds to be faithful to you, to train our children, to train our own consciences, to be uh, participants in the church, to be here hearing your word and being trained by it. Father, we do pray that you would restrain evil on this earth, but if you choose not to, we pray that we would be faithful to you in this time. And may we see the work and the glory of your kingdom against the backdrop of the evil. We pray all these things now in Christ's name. Amen.